welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, New International Version. Hello. I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books and part-time event librarian. He straightens up the books on the bookshelves when one falls over. Today on Anchored by Truth, we're going to begin finishing up our current series where we have focused on the life and historicity of Jesus. And we're going to hear the next-to-last installment of our seven-part epic Christmas poem, The Golden Tree, Eagle Enigma. When we left off last time, three bears that were searching for the lair of the great white koala bear had come face-to-face with two huge ice eagles on the edge of an uncrossable canyon. So essentially, they were facing a giant enigma. Right, Artie? Well, they were facing multiple enigmas. They could see a gleaming city on the other side of the canyon, but was that the home of the great white bear? And how could they cross the canyon to find out? One of the bears who had gone on the quest, Kodan, has figured out that the ice eagles that they've encountered on the edge of this huge canyon, well, those eagles are certainly big enough to give them a ride across the canyon, but which eagle is the right eagle? One of the eagles is white and the other is gold. One of the eagles, they're pretty sure now, works for the demon lord, and so if they pick that eagle, well, that eagle is almost certainly going to kill them if they decide to ride with him. But which is the evil eagle and which is the good eagle? So as we ended last time, in our last episode of the story, Kodan had posed a question to both eagles to try to figure out which was the good eagle and which was the evil eagle. Kodan has heard the answer to his first question, but now he thinks he needs to ask one more question before he makes his final decision about which eagle to try to get a ride across this uncrossable canyon. So it's time to find out what happens to Kodan and his two traveling companions in the Christmas epic poem, The Golden Tree, Eagle Enigma, Part 6. Great White Eagle, you know why we've come to this chasm beneath the sky. Tell me now about the tree, how it came to be, and why. Small Koala, you know that the tree first came from the Great White Bear. This you were told by the Demon Lord when he came to your valley so fair. But what you don't know about the tree and makes your life so tragic, is that the tree alone cannot save. It's you bears that give it its magic. 
The tree was sent to your early forebears to show you what you could do. Your hard work remade the valley because to yourselves you were true. You could have come any time to this land to rest with the great white bear. He waits for you now in the city of gold, for that is truly his lair. Kodan thought about these words, and he liked much he had heard. Yet he knew he still must hear the answer from the other great bird. Mighty Gold Eagle, you know why we've come to this chasm beneath your sky. Tell me now about the tree, how it came to be, and why. Kodan, from the great white bear came the tree. That much is certainly true. But the key to knowing what it truly means is to remember it's a gift to you. The tree in the valley where you live was planted by a tender, loving hand of one who is only a visitor in this world, a stranger in a strange land. The golden tree was the gift that he gave to abide until he returns. It does not depend on you or me for the life that within it burns. Kodan considered the gold eagle's words and compared them to those of the white. Both answers had the ring of truth, but he knew only one could be right. He looked from the eagle whose feathers were gold and whose eyes were sparkling blue to the one whose feathers were whiter than snow with eyes jade black clear through. Finally, he felt the time had come and he spoke in a voice grown bold. I can see by the answers that you've given that I must ride with the gold. The white eagle briefly looked at the bear and made as if to speak, but he made no sound and only set a grim firmness to his beak. The gold eagle rose from the land near the gap with a beat of his outstretched wings. He climbed easily into the sky, then circled in tightening rings. With talons spread, he plunged toward Kodan and plucked the small bear from the ground. He carried the bear over the gulf, his shrieks of victory found. Kojan and Karu watched as Kodan was easily lifted to the heights. The gold eagle lightly soared over the gap, then seemingly paused in its flight. Then Kojan and Karu gasped in fear as before their startled eyes, the gold eagle dropped their friend Kodan and he fell through majestic skies. As the two saw Kodan fall through the air, they grimly settled their mind. An answer to the need they still must seek, for the village help they must find. They left their place, crouched under the rock, and walked quickly toward the white. The great eagle awaited their hurried approach, while readying huge wings for flight. 
Wow. So, did Kodan choose the wrong eagle? It seems that way, since the gold eagle picked up Kodan, but then dropped him over the gap. And what about the other two bears? They went on their quest to try and help their village find another guardian for the golden tree. So if they fail, is their tree also doomed? Seems like there's a lot of unanswered questions. Well, hopefully we'll get the answers to all these questions next week, since next week is part seven, and there's only seven parts to Golden Tree Eagle Enigma. But part of what listeners should be listening for is the answer. Why did Kodan pick the Gold Eagle and not the White Eagle? What was it about the answers that the Eagles gave to Kodan's questions that made him choose one way and not another? So maybe next time we'll hear something about that too. And that's a great lesson for why listeners should grab some friends and family and encourage them to tune in. It would be a good starting point for a discussion in a family setting or a church youth group or a homeschool study project. The story can help kids learn about poetry as a form of literature and also see how their imagination can be an important tool in getting immersed in the Bible. Right. You know, classically, some of the greatest poetry that's ever been written, like Milton's Paradise Lost, was written under the inspiration of the Bible. Now, we've lost some of that awareness of how the Bible has inspired some of the great literature and art, but I firmly believe that we can reclaim that legacy by striving to honor the Lord in everything that we do. So, what's on tap for today as we are right on Christmas's doorstep? Well, I thought as the final closeout topic for this series, it would be fitting to talk about the reason for the season, Christ's birth. You know, Christ's birth has been celebrated on December 25th for centuries. But unfortunately today, even that fact has become a source of either criticism or even an outright attack on the historicity of Jesus. For instance, some critics will claim that the celebration of Christmas was an adaptation of the Roman festival of Saturnalia, and that as such, that casts doubt on the historicity of Jesus. And it's true that the Roman celebration of the Roman god Saturn did occur around the same time on the Julian calendar. The celebration originally started on December 17th, but it was eventually expanded so that it lasted until December 23rd. And there are certainly events on the Roman celebration of Saturnalia that correspond to how we celebrate Christmas. Saturnalia included parties, giving gifts, and plenty of food and drink. Though it did differ markedly in certain ways, a lot of the time Saturnalia probably resembled Mardi Gras more than Christmas. And that's because the Roman god Saturn was the god of abundance and plenty, but Saturn was also thought of as being the god of dissipation and dissolution. And it's fair to say that some elements of the Christian celebration of Christmas were influenced by Saturnalia. In the 4th century AD, Pope Julius, who was Pope from 337 AD to 352 AD, Pope Julius decided that Christ's birthday should be celebrated on December 25th, and that was around the same time as the Saturnalia celebrations. Now, some commentators have speculated that part of the reason why Pope Julius chose that date may have been because he was trying to create a Christian alternative to Saturnalia. And another possibility may have been that in 274 AD, the Roman Emperor Aurelian had declared 25 December as the birth date of Saul Invictus, 
and Julius may have thought that he could attract more converts to Christianity by allowing them to continue to celebrate on the same day that had already been picked by the Roman emperor. So it's fair to say that the way in which we celebrate Christmas probably was influenced by Saturnalia. But that's a very different thing from saying that just because the Roman god Saturn was a mythological figure, that Jesus must also be a mythological figure. In other words, it's a logical fallacy to conclude that just because the god Saturn was a myth, that Jesus must be a myth also. Just because there are some common elements in the way the two different figures were or are celebrated. Exactly. But of course, that does raise the question of whether Pope Julius picked December 25th just because that was a time when there were already pagan celebrations going on, or whether there were other reasons for selecting that day. That is a great question. I'm so glad you agree. Well, we need to start out by saying that the Bible does not tell us exactly when Jesus was born. As one scholar put it, the early Christians were not so much concerned with the date of Christ's birth as the fact of his birth. And for those people who would like to take an in-depth look at the subject of when Jesus was born, there's a great book called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ by Dr. Harold W. Honer. And much of what we're going to talk about in today's show comes from that book. So the first question we need to address is not the day Jesus was born, but the year. I think most people generally think that Jesus was born in 1 A.D., Doesn't A.D. stand for Anno Domini, meaning the year of the Lord? Yes, it does. And that was the original attempt when a Scythian monk named Dionysius originally prepared a calendar for use by the Western Church at the direction of Pope John I in 525 A.D. Before Pope John I directed Dionysius to prepare the new calendar system, the Alexandrian system of dating was being used. But the Alexandrian calendar used the reign of Diocletian, who was a persecutor of the early church. Well, Dionysius did not want the reference date for the church to be based on a persecutor of the church. So Dionysius used the Julian system, which had been established by Julius Caesar, for the organization of the year. And so in this system that Dionysius set up, it ran from January 1st to December 31st, the way the Julian calendar did. And in the calendar that Dionysius set up, the year 1 A.D. was set on January 1st of 754 A.U.C. Now, A.U.C. means Anno Urbis Condite, which meant essentially 754 years after the founding of the city of Rome. So at the time this calendar was being prepared, Jesus was thought to have been born on December 25th of the prior year. Now remember that there is no zero year in our calendar system. The calendar doesn't go through a zero year. It goes straight from 1 B.C., before Christ, to 1 A.D. But But recent scholarship has determined that Dionysius did not get the translation between the A.U.C. system and the system based on Christ's birth year right. Dionysius made an error when he made his calculations. Now as our scripture today from Matthew noted, King Herod was still alive when Jesus was born. Well, at the time that Dionysius set up his calendar, it was thought that Herod had died in 754 AUC. But we now know that the latest possible date for Herod's death was 750 AUC. So that would mean Jesus was actually born four or five years earlier than previously thought. 
So he was born in 4 or 5 BC, not December 25th of 1 BC. Interesting. Yes, but it's worth noting that scholars are not even agreed on that. Because? Because we have two scriptures that serve as the outer boundaries for Jesus' birth. According to Matthew, Jesus could not have been born later than Herod's death. But according to Luke, Jesus was born after a census that had been taken by a Roman official named Quirinius. Now, in Greek, Quirinius would have been Quirinius. So, Luke says in his gospel, this was the first census that took place while a Quirinius was governor of Syria. So, one of the issues about placing this date is there aren't any real clear records about when this census took place. Josephus, for instance, does not mention a census that took place during Herod's reign, but he does mention one that took place around 6 or 7 AD. So, scholars are not unified on the date that this previous census might have taken place. And this is one of the more puzzling questions that still linger about the birth of Jesus. So, does Dr. Honer discuss this question in his book? He does, actually. Dr. Honer does a great job of discussing this particular question. And there's actually a wealth of material available for discussion about many of the sources on this first census of Quirinius. Here's a few things that we know for certain. The Romans were well known to take censuses throughout their empire to establish what we would call the basis for taxation. And it was common in the Roman Empire for them to take them about every 14 years. So we know that there could have been a later census around 6 or 7 AD, but that certainly does not preclude an earlier census that might have been about 14 years earlier. Second, the text from Luke that says that Quirinius was the governor of Syria does not actually use the normal word legatus that is translated as governor. It uses a more generalized term for being an official in charge or leading something. Well, a third thing that we know for sure is that Quirinius, who was, again, a senior Roman official, was in the Middle East from 12 B.C. to 2 B.C., in addition to his later service, potentially, as the governor of Syria. Quirinius was in the Middle East because he was suppressing rebellions that were taking place in what would be called modern-day Turkey. Apparently, Quirinius was well-known as a very successful military leader. So it makes sense that he was given charge of an important task of taking a census, even if it was done as an extra duty. Also, it would make sense that Augustus would want a census taken in that part of the empire because Herod had fallen out of favor with Augustus around 7 or 8 BC, and by then it was known that his health was failing and that his sons were quarreling over who would succeed him. Herod changed his will three times in the year before his death each time naming a different son. Augustus knew about the changes and the quarrels because Herod had to get Augustus's permission before making the changes. Or executing one of his sons, which Herod also did, again with Augustus's knowledge and consent. So that helps show that Herod was the kind of king who would order the murder of all boys two years old and under in and around Bethlehem to get rid of a child the Magi had described as the king of the Jews. So it looks very much like Quirinius might have been in charge of a census sometime in the latter part of Herod's reign around 5 BC. Herod died in 4 BC. But what about the specific day? 
Did Pope Julius just pick that day because it roughly corresponded with Saturnalia? Well, we can't be sure entirely why Pope Julius picked December 25th, but we do know that the traditional date for Jesus' birth had been around for at least 100 to 150 years before Pope Julius officially set it within the church calendar. At a minimum, an early church father named Hippolytus of Rome, who lived from 165 A.D. to 235 A.D., Hippolytus had proposed that date. So by the time Julius actually set the date, that date had been around generally as the date for the birth of Jesus for probably well over a hundred years. Now, it's thought that Hippolytus might have had some greater insight into when Jesus was really born because Hippolytus was associated with one of the earliest disciples of the Apostle John. There's not a lot of information in Scripture itself to pin down the date of Jesus' birth, but the tradition of a midwinter date for his birth does date back to the very earliest of the church fathers. Also, it's fair to note that while December 25th is the traditional date of celebration in the Western Church, in the Eastern Church, they've traditionally used January 6th as the birthday and the arrival of the Magi. But some people object to the December date because a part of Luke that we didn't listen to today says that the shepherds were keeping watch on their flocks which were out in the fields at night. It is generally known that the shepherds brought their sheep into enclosures from about November through March. So the thinking is that if the sheep were out in the field, it couldn't have been December. Well, and that's a reasonable observation, but it's not conclusive. First, it might have been a very mild winter, so there would have been far less reason to keep the sheep enclosed. The sheep would do better if they could be outdoors. Second, the sheep were apparently in and around Bethlehem, as opposed to being out in their spring and summer feeding grounds, which would have been out in the wilderness. So, this makes it far more likely, since the shepherds were in and around Bethlehem, that the birth was during the winter. The shepherds had to be close enough to Bethlehem to get to the family, and the family were staying in Bethlehem, so the shepherds could not have been that far away from Bethlehem when they were with the sheep. If they'd been in the wilderness, they would have been far too far away from Bethlehem to get there quickly. Third, there are Jewish texts that say that the sheep that were going to be used for the Passover celebration were supposed to be out in the field for at least 30 days before the beginning of the celebration. Well, in that particular year, Passover could have been as early as February. So this would reinforce a midwinter date as being reasonable for Jesus' birth, and it would have been something like late December or early January. So Passover in that particular year could have been as early as February. So again, 30 days before early February, that would reinforce a midwinter date, and that midwinter date could have been as early as late December or early January. So again, there's a lot of information that when you take it in its entirety and when you put it together, reinforces the fact that Jesus very likely was born in the midwinter of the year that was around 4 B.C. Again, I would recommend that readers get their own copy of Dr. Hohner's book, The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, and they can read a very thorough discussion about this subject. The really important point to note for today is that while there are some links between the time that we celebrate Christmas to Saturnalia and that there are links between the way that we celebrate Christmas with Saturnalia, that in no way means that we borrow Jesus' birth from some pagan tradition. 
The historical records are very clear, as we've been covering in this series, that Jesus lived and died. That's reinforced not only by the Bible, but by extra-biblical sources. And so the mere fact that there are superficial correspondences between some aspects of certain celebrations, that does not affect in the slightest the actual historicity of Jesus or the validity of the Bible accounts about Jesus. The bottom line is that, again, when you look at the details of history and the gospel accounts, it dispels completely the notion that even if there are superficial resemblances between the Christian celebration of Christmas and some pagan winter festivals, that that somehow diminishes the historicity of Jesus as a person, or his birth in Bethlehem on a night over 2,000 years ago. Sounds like a great time for a prayer. Today, since we're so close to Christmas, let's listen to a prayer about that special day. A Prayer for Christmas Day Wonderful Father, You are the Most High King who lives and reigns in unimaginable majesty and splendor. You superintend all creation, and Your commands cannot be altered. You see the end from the beginning and are the only sure guide for your children. Lord, today we celebrate the birth of the Christ child. Though he was born in the most humble of earthly circumstances, angelic heralds, the messengers of true sovereignty, announced his birth, thereby signifying his royal heritage and that this child would be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. By your command, Christ was called by many names and titles. Gabriel told Mary and Joseph, the child would be called Jesus, which means Jehovah is salvation. Through the prophet Isaiah, you proclaim the child would be called Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. The child would become the Christ, which means the anointed one. The baby would also be called the son of David, because he would inherit the throne you had granted to the greatest king of Israel. When grown, the child would call himself the Son of Man, hearkening back to Daniel's vision of the one who came on clouds of glory to rule and reign. By these names and others, all who looked upon the child and the man, all who know him today, understand that this child is nothing less than the divine Son of the living God. In a way we cannot fathom, Christ Jesus is both fully God and fully man, and because He is, He is fully able to save all those who put their trust in Him. Christ is God. The value of His sacrifice was therefore infinite. Christ is man. He can therefore represent all people who look to Him to redeem them from the desperate plight of sin. Though at His birth the shepherds saw Him in a manger, the truth was that at that moment the hosts of heaven still recognized their King. We glorify you, O Lord, for the manifest goodness that you gave to us. We fall down in worship and praise for so great a salvation, and we pray that his name and yours will be honored in our hearts and in hearts all over the world. We pray that you would help us to proclaim this glorious news, not only today, but every day. We pray that you would open hearts to receive the good news, because Jesus is our Lord and Savior, we have the confidence to come before your throne and to pray in his grace-filled name. Amen.
We'd like to remind our audience that a lot of our radio episodes are linked together in series of topics, so that if they've missed any episodes, or if they just want to hear one again, all of the episodes are available on your favorite podcast app. To find them, just search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. And we'd like to remind listeners that copies of the first part of the Golden Tree Saga, The Golden Tree, Kamari's Quest, is available from our website. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is. Do your friends believe that the Bible is the Word of God? Do you? How can you be sure one way or another? Anchored by Truth is here to help. Fulfilled prophecy is one of the most powerful lines of evidence that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Around 558 BC, the prophet Daniel prophesied that a combined force would conquer the Babylonian Empire. This would have been unthinkable because of Babylon's impregnable walls. But in 539, Emperor Cyrus diverted a river flowing under the wall and entered the city on the dry riverbed as prophesied. To hear more evidence to be sure for yourself that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God, tune in to Anchored by Truth on Wave FM every Tuesday morning at 1130. Faith in the Bible isn't about a leap in the dark. It's about walking in the light of reason and evidence, and Anchored by Truth is here to help you discover that light.